The first of my posts to the Facebook group about chapters 22 to 28 of the Kreutzer Sonata was a focused summary. Poznashev becomes possessed by jealousy and hatred, and more and more it seems to become a lens through which he perceives all his wife's words and actions. She visits his study at an unusual time. She must be trying to conceal her sin. She looks at him with an ingratiating expression. He knows she is trying to hide her guilt. Convinced of his own jealous narrative, he scorns her touch, berates her for her vileness, and threatens her should she dishonor the family. When she fires back, he gives vent to his rage, threatening to kill her, seizing her by the arm, and hurling a paperweight so that it narrowly misses her. She becomes hysterical and falls ill, and still, once more, they make peace with one another, under the spell of an animalistic love. When he confesses his jealousy, she is incredulous at the absurd suggestion that she could be infatuated with such a man, and Poznashev believes her, for the moment. At the Sunday dinner and musical evening, Poznashev does not allow himself to be jealous of his wife and Trukhachevsky, but he watches them carefully, and we have the impression that their every move could be quickly and easily recast in a jealous light. When he describes their performance, the details take on an erotic tone. Her timidity, their stolen glances, the touch of his fingers on the strings. And in music itself, at least in music like Beethoven's Kreutzer Sonata, Poznashev seems to see all the seductive danger of physical love, for it produces an awakening of energy and feeling that cannot but act harmfully. He rhapsodizes on music's formidable power to produce agitation, to transport you to some other position, to make you feel you understand what you do not, to cause your soul to merge with the mental condition of the composer. And in the absence of an object, an outlet, a purpose, music, with all its agitating, transporting, soul-stirring force, becomes, quote, a terrible instrument in the hands of any chance user. Poznashev leaves for his meetings in a tranquil mood induced by the delusive bliss of the music and the temporary containment of jealousy, that mad beast. But a chance word in a letter about a visit from Trukhachevsky, and the beast is again growling in its kennel. Despite all his efforts to convince himself that what she wrote is perfectly natural, that his wife is an honorable woman, and that there is nothing and has been nothing to fear, horror and rage again begin to compress his heart. Everything again is cast in the light of jealousy. Trukhachevsky's greedy red lips, the voluptuousness of the music, the memory of their impassioned expressions and their stolen smiles— the beast has broken its chains, and Poznashev starts for home. The train rattles on, and Poznashev continues his story. I don't know what exactly the effect is of this story taking place on a train, but I always feel dimly aware that it has an effect. Maybe it's something about the forced communion between a man and a murderer, or something about the confined and stagnant space within the train car 
or something about the sense of the external environment rumbling on to some dark destiny. Maybe it's something else. Poznashev has reached the part of his story when he makes an invigorating drive home in the bright and sunny autumn air, momentarily oblivious to his own nefarious purpose. But when he boards a train, he, like I the reader, again feels oppressed, and as he dreams up pictures of what has taken place in his absence, he again becomes intoxicated by anger and humiliation. He becomes like a caged animal, with nothing to do but walk up and down the carriage and brood over his own terrible imaginings. He struggles to distract himself with innocuous thoughts, but his subconscious inexorably carries him from each thought back to that which he is trying desperately to evade. He is tortured most of all by the contradictions within him, by not knowing whether he should love or hate her, by his uncertainty about whether she has actually done what his mind accuses her of doing. And this, I think, is one of the somewhat elusive but critically important points of the story. Her guilt or innocence of infidelity is irrelevant. His jealousy is a primary, a condition inescapably necessitated by a marriage based on carnal love. Quote, Yes, that was where the punishment lay. I wouldn't take a young man to a lock hospital to knock the hankering after women out of him, but into my soul to see the devils that were rending it. What was terrible, you know, was that I considered myself to have a complete right to her body as if it were my own, and yet at the same time I felt I could not control that body, that it was not mine, and she could dispose of it as she pleased, and that she wanted to dispose of it not as I wished her to, and I could do nothing either to her or to him." Unquote. This is the condition, in Poznashev's view, and apparently in Tolstoy's, in which all married men live. Because if marriage is not something sacramental, binding two people before God, then there is nothing that sincerely unites them, and marriage is and must be characterized by animal lust and murderous jealousy. Poznashev alights from the train in a state of agitation and delirium, conscious only that something dreadful is imminent. Despite the servant Agor's deliberately cheerful tone and reassuring words, Poznashev's deepest fears are confirmed. Trukhachevsky is there. He becomes a cruel and cunning beast, bent on proof and punishment. He becomes consumed by self-pity, ruminating about her betrayal of him and the children, conjuring vivid images of her affair, and dreaming up still more egregious acts of infidelity with the footman, until he feels the need to strike and destroy. He enters into that condition when, quote, an animal or a man, under the influence of physical excitement at a time of danger, acts with precision and deliberation, but without losing a moment, and always with a single definite aim in view, unquote. He removes his boots, takes a dagger from the wall, and creeps toward them softly in his socks. He opens the door. Again, what he sees is largely irrelevant. Convinced of his own wicked narrative, 
whatever he sees, whatever they say, will convince him doubly of his preconceived judgment. All that is left to him is to carry out his definite and destructive aim. I won't ask you, or myself, to relive the graphic details of what follows. I will just say that the horror of them is compounded by his perverse concern with appearances. Quote, I remembered that it is ridiculous to run after one's wife's lover in one's socks. Unquote. His obstinate dedication to his conjectures, quote, I might still have hesitated, but those last words of hers, from which I concluded just the opposite, called forth a reply, unquote. and his acute consciousness of his actions. Quote, I could not help knowing everything I did. I knew what I was doing every second. Unquote. And then we are left to inhabit the mind of a murderer after his crime. The moment of regret and desire for remedy. The quickly ensuing decision that it was necessary and right. The casual contemplation of suicide. The overpowering need for sleep. The detachment from the reality of what has been done. And then the chillingly trivial thought that if he is to go to his wife's side as she lies dying, because that is what is done, then he should at least put on his slippers. Poznishev then says it was only when he saw his wife, motionless, waxen, and cold in her coffin, that he understood what he had done, and only when he spent eleven months in prison, reflecting on himself and his past, that he understood why he had done it. And that is how he became this raving madman, monomaniacally possessed by an idea, that he should never have married. That marriage, as understood by the fellow passengers whose blithe discussion prompted this whole mad, murderous, and moralistic confession, can lead only to destruction. The second of my posts to the Facebook group was called Tolstoy on Music and the Sonata by Beethoven. Poznashev's idea that music is a dreadful thing, that it produces agitation, that, in the absence of an object, it is a terrible instrument that cannot but act harmfully, was one I found fascinating, but not convincing. But I thought this description of the power of music to speak directly to your soul, to instantaneously compel a distinct emotional response, was breathtaking and utterly relatable. Quote, music makes me forget myself, my real position. It transports me to some other position not my own. Under the influence of music, it seems to me that I feel what I do not really feel, that I understand what I do not understand, that I can do what I cannot do. I explain it by the fact that music acts like yawning, like laughter. I am not sleepy, but I yawn when I see someone yawning. There is nothing for me to laugh at, but I laugh when I hear people laughing. Music carries me immediately and directly into the mental condition in which the man was who composed it. My soul merges with his, and together with him I pass from one condition into another. But why this happens, I don't know." Unquote. I also loved his scorn for the frivolity with which people treat great art. Quote, 
Take that Kreutzer Sonata, for instance. How can that first presto be played in a drawing-room among ladies in low-necked dresses? To hear that played, to clap a little, and then to eat ices and talk of the latest scandal? Such things should only be played on certain important, significant occasions, and then only when certain actions answering to such music are wanted. Play it then, and do what the music has moved you to." Unquote. Why do people not take great music, great art, great ideas seriously is a feeling that permeates this story. And abstracted away from Posnyshev's or Tolstoy's ideas in particular, perhaps we can agree with this in spirit. In that vein, we should all listen at least to the opening presto of Beethoven's Kreutzer Sonata. I searched online for some sort of consensus among music aficionados about which is the best of the performances, and I'll send you a link by email and post it to the Facebook group. So, turn off the lights, put away your phone, open your soul, and listen to the Kreutzer Sonata. The last of my posts to the Facebook group was called Final Reflections. First, I have some lingering questions. Tolstoy's goal was to make society the murderer, to blame the crime not on Posnyshev himself, but on the institution of marriage. Whether or not he succeeded in making this philosophical case, was he successful literarily? If we suspend philosophic disbelief and just immerse ourselves in his moral universe, was it persuasive that Posnyshev was sincerely repentant and that society is truly guilty? I'd be interested in your thoughts on this question. Also, critics at the time were so terribly scandalized by this story because they thought that what would linger in the memory of readers was the sordidness of the details and not the moral message. Longtime translator of Tolstoy, Isabel Hapgood, who was so appalled by this story that she refused to translate it, put the question this way, quote, what are the legitimate bounds of realism? To what point is it permissible to describe in repulsive detail the hideous and unseemly things of this world simply because they exist, when it is quite impossible to say what the effect will be upon thousands of people to whom such description conveys the first knowledge of the existence of evil? Unquote. I think that is a fascinating question as it applies to this story and far beyond. I'd also like to share my own final verdict on this story. I'm glad that I've read it. When I'm confronted with the idea that sex is sinful and an inevitably corrupting force in human relationships, and I dare say we have all been confronted, assaulted even, with that idea recently, I'll be able to consider that idea as it has been played out in epic Tolstoyan proportions. Along the dark and tortuous way, I've been dazzled by astutely and memorably formulated insights into music and jealousy and conflict and marriage and the nature of evil. And I think all of us must continually immerse ourselves in worlds in which the overwhelming conviction is that ideas matter. We must be continually stirred and prodded out of an intellectually complacent and unexamined life. 
I can always count on Tolstoy for that. <laughs>